Welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. And our very special guest is Jason Buck, partner and CIO at Mutiny Fund. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Jason, it's really a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the show. Really looking forward to our conversation. Pierre, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. And I guess it takes three hosts to, to run this interview. So I hope I, can, hope I can stand up on the other side. Well, I think, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll frame that properly because I think I'm the uh, dumbest person in the room, but uh, I love being in that position because um, I, I think I get to learn the most out of everybody. And um, that's kind of what this show is all about. It's all about you know raising everyone's average, raising our average, and thus everyone else's. Um, so uh, great to have you, Jason. To kick things off, I think maybe tell us about your career path, how and where you started investing uh, personally, professionally, and, and the circumstances leading up to the founding of Mutiny. Hey, sure, and, so- and don't don't forget the carpet history. I just learned <laughs> pre-show that he used to sell fine artisanal carpets yeah. in Turkish markets. And I want to hear about <laughs> cut loop and pile and yeah. over dyeing. Yeah. Make sure you bring all that expertise in. We're, For sure. Yeah, don't 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 leave that out. <laughs> yeah, I'll go into all of the uh, design history and what all the uh, all the shapes mean and natural dyes and lanolin and all that great stuff. But now I'll try to keep it shorter. So I was. Like, like a lot of people, that stereotypical kid when I was 13 years old, like convinced my dad to help me buy my first stock. So I've always been obsessed with financial markets. Um, have been trading like options for over two decades now. Started trading VIX and volatility about 2011, 2012. Um, but I was, a, I was an entrepreneur first. And so I had a commercial real estate development company um, going into 2006, 2007, 2008. And the pain of that liquidity crunch was so acute. I just figured there had to be a way to hedge some entrepreneurial risk. And it doesn't seem there's anything in the marketplace. So it was, it was a better part of the last 10 years trying to figure out a solution to this. And so, in, like I said, in 2012-ish, I was, I was trading volatility arbitrage, you know, VIX, intermarket spreads between VIX and the S&P. And I'd been trading options for over, over a decade until then. And so I kind of knew how to hedge risk myself in my own book. And I had family and friends trying to ask me how to do it themselves as well. And then over time, people start saying, you know, I've read a Nassim Taleb book or a Chris Cole white paper, you know, how do I hedge my risk? And I'd be like, well, do you have $100 million? No. Well, you're screwed. There's, you know, none of these people that do this professionally are going to take on your account. And so it just started to really gnaw at me and bother me that from an entrepreneurial basis that there had to be a solution to this. So my partner and I, Taylor Pearson, and I set about over the last few years trying to figure out is there a solution that we can find for retail investors? Unfortunately, they have to be accredited, but retail investors can get access to some of the best and brightest uh, long volatility and tail risk managers. And we figured out how to do it and package it up so they can get an ensemble approaches that manage all the different path dependencies to a sell-off or a volatility event. And so that kind of brings us up to where we are now. Uh, we launched in 2020, and, and this is what we provide for people. And we, help, we figure it helps ballast their portfolio during a sell-off but more importantly, it helps them reduce that volatility tax, helps them raise their average and compound wealth more efficiently over time. Yep. There you go. Raising your average. I like that. Raising the geometric return average. 
See how it just like resonates so, through uh, everything we, you know, that, that theme. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> For sure. And I think, so let's talk a little, let's dig in a little bit into what uh, tail actually means. What, you know, maybe in the U.S. it's fairly well known. Uh, in Canada, it might be a little less known. And you, you seem to be, you know, you are kind of fully immersed in this. You understand that there are different types of tales, and you said the word ensemble along with the idea of tale. So maybe expand a little bit on what you mean by tale in, in perspective of what the product you put together, and then what do you mean by sure. ensemble? So starting off, stereotypically um, or historically, tail risk has been managing the left tail of S&P 500 returns. So unfortunately, I'm going to stay kind of American-centric on this, but you know, you'll get the general idea. Um, so if you wanted to hedge a drawdown in the S&P 500 beyond a negative 20% sell-off, we call that an attachment point, and you, you would buy put options to make sure you're covered for one for one for any sell-off beyond there. And that's how the tail risk industry kind of built up, was they would create bespoke hedge profiles for institutional clients to hedge out their equity beta beyond attachment point of, like, say, negative 15 or negative 20% down. Now, the issue with that historically has been you pay annually uh, for that premium bleed. Just like insurance, you pay a risk premium to cover that risk. And so let's say at a negative 15 to negative 20% attachment point, that's going to cost you between 3 and 6% a year to pay those premiums for those put options to protect yourself in that drawdown. And so you know, when we looked at that tail risk scenario, although we believe in how that compounds your wealth over time, because when that sell-off happens, you're able to monetize those puts. It gives you a convex cash position. And then you rebalance with your equities at a lower nav point. And by reducing that volatility tax of the drawdown and also buying in to your equities at that lower point, you're able to compound wealth more efficiently over multiple business cycles. But when we looked at the tail risk historically, you guys have dealt with this, Rodrigo, you and I have talked about this, is most people can't handle that line item, that negative three to negative 6% a year. And so even if we believed in that, it doesn't matter if clients are unwilling to hold it. And a, a great example was CalPERS earlier in 2020. They got rid of half their tail risk protection in Q1 2020, right before the sell-off, because they got tired of 12 years of looking at that negative line item. And so it doesn't help you if you're not going to hold it. So we had to think about behaviorally, you know, what can we do to help people hold this portfolio protection? So that's tail risk. Uh, a lot of things you'll hear is that's managing the left tail. You could also manage the right tail by buying calls on the S&P 500 or call spreads, where if the markets rip higher and you have volatility to the upside, like a market melt-up like you had in 99, you could also buy calls and you could manage that right tail as well. Now, we've had this new term called long volatility, and I think it was really brought to the forefront by Chris Cole. But the way we look at just long volatility is buying those left and right tails opportunistically. So you might not have them perpetually on like you would with a left tail risk portfolio. You might more opportunistically use algorithms to see, you know, where is that fire, forest fire, fire likely to spark off? You know, where is, where's the low humidity? Where is it high wind? You know, where is there a lot of underbrush? And so then you're opportunistically trying to time the market on both the left and the right tail. And that's what we call long volatility is trading those opportunistically. The other piece to it is what we call volatility arbitrage, which is a bit different, but it's a, like your stereotypical pairs trade. Um, you can use an intermarket spread where you can go, let's say, short the VIX and short the S&P, or long the VIX and long the S&P. This is a naive way of doing it, but you, if you get your ratio right, you're just using a pairs trade of volatility in the S&P and banking on their general negative correlation. The other way to do volatility arbitrage is on the VIX calendar spread, 
where you might go short or long the front month and short or long the back month and ratio those pairs out as well. But you can do that in a market neutral way where you're still remaining long volatility. So it's an interesting way of doing a, a statistical arbitrage while still remaining long volatility at the end of the day. The third way we look at it is another is just using intraday trend following to short the market indices around the world. Because after a sell-off like March 2020, the implied volatility of those options prices is going to expand, making them a little more expensive and reducing that convexity. So then you could just go short the delta one nature of the futures market, just directionally short those market indices around the world. And so that's kind of the way we look at the whole ensemble approach to, to volatility in general, is there's so many different path dependencies. We want to use different managers that trade those different market microstructures of VIX, options, and futures. So that way we can cover as many path dependencies possible to try to capture the meat of that move. And then we also bring back in those deterministic rolling puts just to make sure we can sleep at night in case there's any exogenous event on like a, a Saturday or Sunday when the markets aren't open. Right. So you want to make sure that you are hugging that that long volatility signal in many different ways, right? You talked about the attachment point being a 20%. That's a classic one that I heard originally when yep. I started speaking with the guys at Universa back, God, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, but the fear is always, well, what if you have this drawdown and it reaches 19% and then bounces right back? You never got to monetize anything, everything. So having a single strategy, a single attachment point actually gets you into, into a situation when you might have a black swan event within the black swan event, right? So this, this idea of the ensemble, different methods, some are static, like you said at the end, you have your, your long put positions, but you also have opportunistic and dynamic long volatility where you can make money on both the, the short and the long side, right? So I think that's, you know, I really like, you know us, right? We're, we're at Resolve love the ensemble approach. And I think you're the only one that I know that has actually grabbed a wide array of managers, put them together in order to, to solve this problem. And, well, and in good timing too, right? We're able to launch this in yeah, hopeful timing. 2020. I mean, or did you we, not, we did launched, you not get it yeah, launched before Unfortunately, the crash? everybody wants flood insurance after the flood. So we actually <laughs> launched April 17th. So it was like the hug of death. And my partner and I talked about it, is like, <laughs> if we don't see a second or third leg down, which we really try to protect against, which is very hard to do, I'm like, this is going to be the hug of death. You know, it's going to be, you know, and that's what happened. Volatility yeah. crushed back down from the 80s back down to the 20s. But it's always people, unfortunately, and, and Rodrigo, I know you've dealt with this too, is they, they only look at tail risk or long volatility in isolation. And you really have to look at how you structure it within a holistic portfolio. And what it really does at the end of the day, it allows two things. It allows you to hold more equity beta, to have more risk on and to be able to sleep at night. And more importantly, when it's a risk off and you have that violent liquidity event on your equity beta, you have that convex position of long volatility and tail risk that gets this cash back on the books that then you can rebalance at that lower nav point of your equity beta. And it's if you just look at an isolation, it's going to look like a terrible strategy. It's how you combine it with the rest of your portfolio. It's interesting that, um, like, like you talked about CalPERS or even, I don't know if you know, that w Wimbledon has been paying 1.5 million pounds a year for the last 17 years to insure against a pandemic-like uh, happening, and they've just been paid about 114 million pounds in order to uh, satiate the gap in earnings that occurred in 2020 due to the pandemic. And that's that's really a, a very similar structure to what you're talking about, is that you're, you're, you have this cost of the hedge or cost of insurance, and you're 
via ensembling and skill, you're trying to mitigate as much as possible the ongoing cost of insurance uh, so that in the event of that um, uh, point of impact, you're going to get a payoff. And then that payoff keeps businesses rolling. And in the portfolio context, the payoff actually allows you to, as you said, buy those other assets in the portfolio that are having significant struggles with their NAV and thereby enhancing the overall uh, portfolio return because you've got that massive um, uh, portfolio opportunity to go and just simply rebalance. Don't try to overthink it. Don't put it in cash. Don't say I'll do it tomorrow. Uh, just, you know, my, my suggestion is for the vast majority of those who would be considering this, they would want to have integrated rules. Um, we integrate some of these concepts into our funds and, and um, you know, we do it on a rules-based basis because, you know, there are, uh, there are very few atheists in the foxhole, they say. When the bullets <laughs> are flying, it's, it's tough to make decisions. So you want to have those decisions fairly mapped out in advance. You're correct. I mean, as you know, like any of us that have family members or in-laws, even even they don't want to rebalance. They're like, this asset class has been my best asset <laughs> class of the last year. Why would I rebalance it? And so we even have to make those arguments internally with our family members. So we've all been through the pain of that. But I think tying it back in, Mike, what I, I suggested originally was this came out of the impetus for trying to hedge entrepreneurial risk. And right. so what yeah. I think a lot of financial advisors don't realize is they're typically like quadruple leverage to the market or to equity beta. Right, mm -hmm. they have their clients are, are long equity beta. Their business, therefore, then is long equity beta. Their salary is long equity beta, and then their own savings are are long equity beta. And so they're quadruple level to the market. So the way I think about it personally as an entrepreneur, what I really want wanted this long volatility tail risk piece for me personally is when you have a March twenty twenty like event, or if something got even worse than that, I have this convex cash position that then allows me to either make payroll for extended period of time, allows me to buy up my competitors for pennies on the dollar when cash is king or it allows me to buy up opportunistic real estate deals. So it, it gives me a tremendous advantage on an entrepreneurial basis. Yeah, that, that, that whole, yeah, that, the whole great, idea of, of um, rebalancing or when you talk to people, investors or entrepreneurs, when, when you were in the depths of one of these types of uh, events, how did you have the foresight to have cash is often a question that's a good one because, well, I, I didn't have any and I couldn't rebalance and I couldn't buy low. I mean, this is uh, sort of structurally related so that you will be provided capital to buy when things are opportune and make those uh, acquisitions. And it's, it's a structural um, uh, position within the portfolio that provides for that. And so I think that's... Um, what well, kind of perspective? Uh, you know, even more important. It's amazing. Uh, it's amazing to see. It's amazing to see this actually work well for people that we know in in the fintwit space, right? Meb Faber has been talking about this for a bunch of years. But what I didn't know, and I found out about after the fact, is that he created his own tail protection for his company. The company itself bought tail protection. And he got paid and was able to <clears throat> not only recapitalize, because he, he runs a bunch of exchange-traded funds that are mainly beta, right? They are, his whole business is levered to the global growth of the, of the world. And so he was able to use that cash to recapitalize and, and continue to grow the company. Uh, so we've seen, in, in when, when the markets were going down, I kind of felt really bad for somebody like Meb, and then I realized, oh, no, no, he's perfectly fine, right? And in fact, he's in a better position than almost anybody else I know. And in the same way, in 08, uh, so I started managing wealth with this 
tail protection in mind back in 2006. And I recall in 08 um, when the tails and the, and the CTAs were paying off and we were making money for clients, how great it was uh, in order to, to, to capitalize on a bad situation while around me, the other advisors that had just seen their books of business be cut in half, their revenues be cut in half, their uh, uh, bills coming due, uh, people and their family getting fired, where they had they were literally in in depressive stupor, right? And it just it was just this once in a lifetime the credit crunch type of thing. We saw a once in a lifetime event now. The Fed acted faster, so it wasn't a deeper loss and and a massive recovery since. But the key is, you know, if you're an advisor and you're like anybody else that has had to be forced to reach for yield, and reaching for yield means more exposure to traditional equity markets that require abundant liquidity, uh, continuous growth growth shocks, and um, and you know a, a portfolio that is geared towards providing that type of risky yield. You need to start thinking about that tail protection side because of that quadruple or triple or quadruple the leverage other piece that, that you find yourself. Yeah, just tough to do. Right? We can talk yeah, about the behavioral risk because you need it in place beforehand. And as, as Mike said, there's no atheist in foxholes. So it allows you to be very rational and calm in those sell-offs because you have this ballast to your portfolio. But the other thing that a lot of um, people don't think about is the Ill- illiquid side of your book. So everybody's moved out the risk curve right, into illiquid private assets or, or venture capital or private equity. And you know, in a sell-off, you, don't have, you can't source liquidity there. You need some place to be able to source liquidity to be able to stay solvent. And this is where the convexity, that tail risk and long volatility, can provide you with that liquidity. Even worse sometimes is a lot of your, your PE or VC investments are having capital calls in that drawdown because now it's a target-rich environment and they're looking to buy assets, but you can't source liquidity from anywhere else or everything is selling off at the same time. So now you're going to sell off your equities for liquidity, but they're in a death spiral. So it just it, it doesn't provide you that ballast yeah. of liquidity you need to pair with illiquid assets as well. I think the... The other thing that that shouldn't be understated in this discussion, too, is if you are responsible for long-lived assets, so whether those are your family assets, you're an advisor with long-lived assets that extend beyond the age of 65 to 85 lifespan to potentially uh, down the the chain of inheritance, when when you think about managing wealth in that context and then layer on top the types of regimes that can and will occur um, as Rodrigo pointed to the you know the, the the inflationary or deflationary growth shock or growth era that we've been in for well since 1982 if you think about that and you say okay well that's one era but I will be exposed to many eras and I will be exposed to many of the shifts between eras and that's not a maybe that's not a, oh, I'll be okay for the next three years and I'll be cute and try and predict or try and sidestep one of these. Eventually, if you're stewarding really long-lived assets, whether you're uh, an allocator at a pension fund, uh, an, an endowment, uh, someone managing retirement funds for people, so you know that you have a 30 to 50-year time frame potentially that you are stewarding these, this wealth. What are the chances over that 30 to 50 year time frame that we have events like this? Well, we know there are more than people expect. They're more than Gaussian in a, in a, in a sort of Gaussian perspective, the numbers would, would, uh, would suggest. So we know we're going to have more than we would think. 
And we, I think we should be pretty humble about trying to uh, predict them and sidestep them in any way and, and time uh, our exposure to these types of protocols, Jason. Um, do you have any thoughts there or, or can people do a good job of timing it? I mean, I look at it and say, you got 50 years, so you know you're going to have a whole bunch of them. So we should have this, we should have some protection. And now we're going to try and get cute and say, well, I'm going to have it on sometimes when I think things are going to go wrong. And maybe you can share some thoughts. There. <laughs> That's a great setup. <laughs> yeah, to, there's, I'm going to try to limit to three thoughts, but I can usually limit like I can only remember two things at once. So we'll see how I do. But one is like that you touched on is people think long term about like a 50 year time horizon. Right. And we we always think about managing multigenerational wealth. But what I think people miss is they go, if you just invest for the stocks for the long haul, you'll be just fine. And they, they lack a, a concept of sequencing risk. And so even if you're managing a pension or endowment and you're looking out 50 years, like we just said, you could have a liquidity crunch in the next two to three years and you would need to be able to manage for that. And the way to do that is reduce the volatility tax that drawdowns have. And that's why you add things like tail risk, long volatility, commodity trend, even bonds and cash. You need to have a diversified, you need to diversify your diversifiers into that ensemble risk. But more importantly, like in 2008, people don't realize that like Harvard got rid of even track suits for their athletes and reduced their school lunches down to like PB&J sandwiches because of the, the collapse in liquidity that they experienced in 2008. It doesn't matter if they had a 100-year time horizon. We forget that things happen in the next few years of our lifetime, and we can't predict those a priori. And another thing to think about that I know you guys focus on as well is that we live in a different kind of world now in a way. Um, we've seen this rise of the derivatives market in the last 20 years. And now we're, the derivatives markets, just equity derivatives alone, are trading $1 trillion notionally a day in equity derivatives. And the reason for that is people have moved out the risk curve. Everybody's searching for yield in all these different ways. And if they sell volatility, they can get this non-recourse leverage to hit the yield point they want. But they're selling a lot of risk that way. So now when we have market sell-offs like March 2020, it was the fastest one in history because these are endogenous liquidity events. And the market has become much more leveraged, moved out the risk curve, and a lot more involved in derivatives. So we could see sell-offs that are so violent and so fast you, maybe cash or bonds are not going to provide that ballast that they used to. You need something that has that convexity to really balance out that portfolio. And then and you need it all the time. You need it, as you mentioned. Uh, what, what triggered me was, the, you know, it's, it's cheap before the flood. The, the yeah. earthquake insurance is, is cheapest before the earthquake. And so you, you want to make sure you have protocols in place basically all the time because as if it's a one in a hundred year storm, and you have a hundred-year time frame, you kind of a certainty that that storm is going to happen to you. Yeah. And so, you you want to make sure that these types of protocols, as you're thinking about putting them into portfolios, that they're ever present. We think about it from the standpoint of, you know, preparation, prediction, protection. These are three things that you're going to have going on in your portfolio, and you know, prepared is is whatever for us is risk parity, but it can be different things for different folks. Prediction is, well, how are you going to tilt and add value and what are your what are your metrics there? And then protect is all about, well, having something with asymmetric payoffs to complement the current portfolio. So I also wonder if you could talk to some of the other asset classes um, that might provide um, uh, tail hedge protection properties and whether you guys have looked at providing those uh, things like, you know, bond market shocks or commodity market shocks because the equity risk premium isn't the only one. And what are the limitations or the liquidity limitations? How have you found that? Sure. So we, we think about the world somewhat similar to risk parity, but a little different. 
So we try to pair up um, directional vol parity. So we're not risk parity in the sense of variance parity. We look at directional vol parity. So we think about stocks, bonds, real estate, private equity, venture capital are all implicitly short volatility. They're all long GDP assets that are harmed by volatility. So we try to balance those with implicit long volatility assets. So we look at um, long vol trading, tail risk trading, commodity trend advisors, and then maybe things like gold and Bitcoin. And so we look at about how do we pair those up together to make sure that ballasts the portfolio in, in the way you need to happen. So Rodrigo brought up 2008 earlier. So we don't know what the next crash or, or recession is going to look like. So in 2008, like a, a commodity trend advisor would have done a lot better than even um, tail risk puts would have, depending on time frame, right? So if it's a more long or protracted or drawn out recession, uh, CTAs are likely to do better and, and ride that trend. So you want them on your books for those scenarios. March 2020, that violent sell-off was so fast that you needed tail risk protection because the, the CTAs, their trends didn't have them into that market. By the time they got in the market, the market rips back up. They're going to get whipsawed. And that's essentially, that's their cost of premium, as you guys know, and, and if, we, if we broke it down into options pricing. Mm-hmm. And so we really look at you know, balancing a portfolio between these implicit short volatility assets and your long volatility assets. And that over time is what really, re- like I said, reduces that volatility tax, raises your compounding average to make sure your savings will be there when you need them most, whether that's one year from now or 100 years from now. How do you do it in such a way? Like, it, it, do you see a time in the future where this kind of insurance will be available to everybody? Or I, I mean, it, how do you how do you have it on all the time without it being uh, expensive? I think at the very beginning you mentioned that that as a line item, you know, most investors wouldn't tolerate a three to six percent charge for the insurance. So, what are you doing, uh, like, to make it cheap? Are you you're uh, Maybe can you explain yeah. the ensemble process? How do you how you create these? Is it kind of like a reverse parlay bet where you have multiple situations? <laughs> you know, like yeah. like in a parlay bet, you would you would have huge odds because of the this you know chain of selection that that you're making for the payoff. But but when it comes to the the opposite, where you're you're setting up this insurance, are you setting up a series of circumstances that makes the insurance? Uh, you know, a low odds event that makes it inexpensive? Sure. I think uh, expensive and cheap are, are dangerous terms when we're talking about options, but I'll, I'll try to break it down a little bit. Yeah. So, is, forgive yeah. me. <laughs> no worries. No, it's, yeah. it's, uh, I, I always, the people have these arguments, right? That um, put options are expensive or they're cheap. And I, and I always say, how could you know it's ever in hindsight? So either they were expensive and you should have sold volatility because nothing happened or a violent phase shift happened and they were dramatically underpriced and you should have been buying put options. So it's only possible to know in hindsight if options are cheap or expensive. So that's just a side note. Um, But so the way we look at it is you could have those deterministic rolling puts on of tail risk and know your bleed is three to 6% a year, depending on what the market's giving you. And as as what I think Mike or Rodrigo, I think Mike pointed it out, is like you have this Minsky-like moment of the, the closer you get to that tail event happening, actually the cheaper the put options become. It's this nice uh, scenario because people are selling more and more volatility. So the options become cheaper and cheaper right before the event. So that's a nice piece to that. But if you're taking those tail risk options, you're paying that deterministic bleed, right? So by us building an ensemble approach, we've replaced the deterministic bleed for a variable return. And so there's trade-offs to that, right? So we could be down more than, you know, that 3 to 6% in any given year or quarter, or we may be up in any given year or quarter, or we may be flat. 
And so the way we thought about the ensemble approach is our largest bucket by far is buying options. So it's those long volatility and tail risk options. And that's the bulk of our portfolio. Because I know you guys had Nancy Davis on. She said it perfectly. It's debit card investing. When you're buying options, you're paying a little bit of premium and you know what your downside risk is, but you have this asymmetric upside that you don't know about. So the bulk of our portfolio is just buying options because you can't blow up that way. And then we, on the periphery, we added this volatility arbitrage and these short futures because the volatility arbitrage is a pairs trade, so it should be an income trade that helps cover the cost of that premium bleed on those options. And then, like I said, when March 2020 happens and the implied volatility expands on those options, you can go short the futures while, while not paying up for that implied volatility premium. But during the risk-on cycle, we hope to be flat to slightly positive by using this ensemble approach where these managers are using different market microstructures and they have different uh, monetization heuristics. So we can also harvest a rebalancing premium between them. And I know I just hit the keywords for Mike and Rodrigo with the rebalancing premium, but that's the way we look at it is like, hopefully we can achieve a little bit of rebalancing premium that helps us, helps us hit that flat to slightly positive during the risk on cycle. And so that's why we instituted the ensemble approach is to try to get that behavioralness where people can actually carry the strategy but also balance it out with their S&P exposure, but still maintain all that convexity for a risk-off scenario. But also, it's more important to manage those path dependencies and not only have the different trading styles, but the different monetization heuristics. Because when that sell-off happens, you need people tranching that monetization to make sure you capture the meat of that move. So are you doing that, Jason? In, in which, like, are we managing the managers and telling them to sell? or So the way we look at it is, this is hard. So every yeah. manager thinks they can drive alpha. And I agree and disagree, right? So we find managers that think they can drive alpha, but then we package them up in an ensemble approach because I just want the beta of long volatility and tail risk. So we try to find managers with different wrinkles. So one, we can harvest that rebalancing premium, but also we can tranche that monetization. So we think about the moneyness of our options and our different managers' monetization heuristics, and we let them do their thing. But we've a priori built that into the program to make sure we're covering that path of moneyness from slightly out of the money to deep out of the money. So using the, the ensemble approach, uh, you have your bleed on one side, and, and then part of the ensemble approach is paying for that, is, is basically covering uh, from collecting premiums part of the cost of that bleed. Is that, yeah, it, is that right? It's, I mean, it's fair. Except for our managers that are long volatility opportunistically trading, whether it's um, take logic of funds that's trading in at the money straddle and then gamma scalping that position daily trying to offset that theta bleed or that time decay. And then you have uh, firms like Artemis that are trading more strangles opportunistically with puts and calls is they feel over the risk on cycle, they should have a positive carry just by trading opportunistically. So it's not a very deterministic bleed from them, but we are trying when the times they bleed offset a little bit with the volatility arbitrage and the short futures. And our, our managers are surprisingly uncorrelated during the risk on cycle, which helps us. But then because we had that in place, we came back in and added that deterministic bleed of a negative 20% attachment point with ro a rolling put ladder. So that way we could sleep at night. Because at the end of the day, uh, Taylor and I built this for to scratch our own niche. This is what we wanted a product for ourselves and our families and to maintain our family's wealth over multi-generations. We built right. exactly what we wanted. Right. And, and I think that that's, that's important uh, for many respects, right? You, there's, there's been a lot of words thrown that's out like theta decay and, um, you know, different types of volatility managers and 
that the truth is that every one of them has the opportunity to actually make money in a risk-off event. They just, in, in between the risk-on, the aggressive risk-on like in 99 or the aggressive risk-off in COVID or 2008, there's opportunity to play the, the volatility space, whether you're long or short. And every one of them, every one of the managers that Jason just described has a completely different style that in that in that kind of um, middle part, they have a chance to do well, do poorly. And, and, and regardless of whether having an ensemble or not, regardless of it, there will be periods where you're going to bleed a little bit in that strategy. Um, and I think it's important because oftentimes people talk about this idea of tail protection as an insurance policy. Right? They'll say things like, listen, it's like an insurance policy. When you have an insurance policy, you pay a premium every year. You, know, you don't get anything. You're likely never going to have to claim that insurance policy, that fire insurance on your house or whatever. But you're okay with paying a certain amount every year. And the problem with that analogy, of course, and where it breaks down is that in the case of your insurance policy, there is a low volatility of your premiums. As in, you know exactly that you're going to pay X amount every year on your health insurance, on your, uh, your uh, home insurance, on your fire insurance, right? So this certainty of spend is what gets people behind an insurance policy. Where in the, in the case of market dynamics and trying to hedge those tails, every year is going to be different. As Jason said, the ensemble, some years will be actually positive and you'll be patting the manager in the back. And then there'll be other times where the S&P is up 30% and the tail, it just didn't work out for all of the managers as, as, as an ensemble and you're down 5%. It's like, how could you lose money when everybody else is making money? These are the behavioral um, issues that, that advisors will face and advisors will face with their clients, right? So I just, you know, I always warn with regard to using the insurance policy as an analogy without actually saying, but by the way, your, 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 the variability of your payments is going gonna, is gonna to be wide. And so we need to prepare for that and we need to be okay with that because, again, this is about your long lived assets. This is about protecting against something that's happened in 2000, 2008, a little, a little tiny bump in 2015, then in, um, yeah. again in 2020, right? So there's, uh, the, you know, you need to make sure that you understand it, be willing to pay that excess yield and then have it embedded in your important client's portfolio as often with, with as much education as possible. So Jason, you guys do a great job at educating um, uh, your clients. How important is that aspect for? Well, we have to. Um, and then a couple of things you said, we also use these different styles. So we try to capture pops and volatility. Like when the VIX ETPs blew up in February 18, we had managers that were up double digits and we try to rebalance and capture that across our platform of ensemble approaches. And even like in Q4 of 2018, some of those managers did exceedingly well as well, so we're trying to capture that. And also, it was just making me think when you were talking about insurance, though, as, as, as you guys know, and I've lived in the hurricane belt, uh, hurricane insurance is variable, and after the hurricane comes, you may not even be able to get a hurricane insurance, and it's exceedingly expensive. <laughs> but also, it's an excellent point, though, because you couldn't have coastal property without hurricane insurance. And the value of coastal property wouldn't be so asymmetric without hurricane insurance. Because you're, you're, you're leveraging up with a mortgage to that beta, and they wouldn't provide you the mortgage without the hurricane insurance because the people providing your mortgage know that bad things happen over time. So that's, it's an interesting piece to that. But getting back to education is, like, is the key for what we do. Now, I think this goes back, actually, I didn't answer your question before, Pierre, is that yep. is everybody going to have this in their portfolio? I'm not so certain for multiple reasons. One is we view long volatility and tail risk as the last bastion of active management. 
you know, you can hit a buy button in every other form of equity, bonds, everything. It's, makes, it's ex- exceedingly easy. The problem with long volatility and tail risk is the volatility surface is constantly undulating. You have all the changes of non-economic players, whether it's Canadian pension funds, Australian superannuation funds, Asians or Europeans selling structured products. The market is constantly moving around and you need active management to manage it properly. Right. And so this is why we believe it's the last bastion of active management. So part of that is, one, you can't really get the access point, which is what we tried to create for our clients, um, because a lot of these managers, understandably, have high minimums. Um, or, uh, two, like you said, you could do it systematically. You can buy puts and rolling puts, um, but it's not as easy as everybody thinks. It's one thing to put the positions on. It's a whole other thing, like we've been discussing, to monetize them. And the other thing is people just, I think, typically just do a fixed spend, which yeah. works if you go from a risk on to a risk off environment. It, it provides a nice position for you. But what I'm really concerned about is the second or third length down that we haven't seen in a modern era. And then those, those fixed spend puts are not going to provide you with like any protection. When you're, when you're dealing with um, investors, uh, for example, you know, when you're dealing with them directly, uh, I imagine like because of your story that, that a lot of your investors are established uh, wealthy entrepreneurs that want to do the same thing. They want to achieve the same objective that you set out to achieve in the first place, which was to protect your family's wealth uh, meaningfully. Obviously, not not in not not in just in jest, but yeah. truly to protect it. And um, what's the reception like from entrepreneurs when when you tell them that it's possible to do that? I think you know we've been conditioned as investors to take risk as it comes and the sort of sort of offhanded, you know, like, oh, well, don't invest if you can't afford to lose it. But I mean, who can afford to lose anything, really? Uh, it's not, you know, that that's that's sort of the old school uh, attitude towards, you know, Wall Street and investing. But, you know, with all these new developments, including what you're doing, um, when when what what what's the reaction that you get from entrepreneurs who who hear from you that it's possible and here's how? And, and how receptive are they to that? That's a great question. And, and I'll touch on it in, in, in a couple of ways. One is that, you know, we talked about, you know, house insurance or car insurance or life insurance. And Nassim Taleb said a great, if you don't have portfolio insurance, you don't have a portfolio. And so this is what we try to educate our clients on. But part of it is um, my, my partner, Taylor Pearson, wrote a, a best-selling book called The End of Jobs. And he's got this amazing audience of entrepreneurs, primarily 25 to 40, a lot of which have had their first liquidity event. And as everybody's an entrepreneur on here, as you know, is like we have to concentrate, uh, have a really concentrated position to make money as an entrepreneur, to build wealth. But then once you've built wealth, you now need to diversify to maintain your wealth over multiple generations. And so these are the clients we work with. They've had that first liquidity event. They're very smart entrepreneurs. They may not be as savvy as investors, but we look for the clients that are already in that space already. Um, right. So they're already, we're very like-minded. And then the second part is, if they haven't read like a Nassim Taleb book or a Chris Cole white paper, or actually any of Resolve's work, then it's really a no-go. And so it's interesting, like, we don't, we're not trying to be everything to everybody. Is We actually focus on firing clients at the top of the funnel as fast as we can. Because if you don't get what we do, the education curve is way too steep. We're looking for clients that are like, oh my God, I've been doing this myself. I've been failing at it. I've been trying to find somebody to build this for me. I can't believe I haven't found you guys until now. Those are the clients we're looking for. Everybody else, it's like, what is tail? Like, why would I want insurance? Why should I hedge? You know, I should just be long GDP for the rest of my life. 
it's going to be impossible to convince somebody of that. So we're just, we're not in that convincing game. We're just trying to find the people that think like we do. Just looking for the horses around the watering hole, yeah. right? <laughs> Your watering hole. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what? I mean, like as an entrepreneur, you know, That's right. you, you just, uh, you get used to it, the water being a certain temperature, <laughs> right? And then so, so you feel like you're invincible. You feel like you can take anything, like I'll just deal with it when it comes. And, and, you know, like we, every business has its risks and we, we certainly, we have ours and, and, you know, whether it's a mistake or, 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 you know, economic conditions or, or something's happening that, that affects uh, anyone's business. Um, but, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but I just don't tend to think about it as much as I need to. And, um, you know, I, I would, I think I would probably sleep a whole lot better at night if I knew that, that no matter what was coming, uh, you, you know, we could find a way to cover it, like beyond, you know, corporate liability and, and errors and omissions insurance, what can you do to protect business X, whatever that is, whether, I mean, I love the, the discussion that that sort of um, started at the beginning about you know uh, advisors protecting themselves, protecting their book uh, against against a crisis, so that they're not sitting there in a dumb stupor wondering when the market's going to recover. Uh, this year was lucky. This this last year was really a, a you know pure pure luck. I mean, like if anybody was looking, you know, it, it was April twenty third or March 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 twenty third. At their book and and wondering, oh my God, you know what's happening here? What am I going to do? My, I'm off forty percent. Um, you know, no one, no one knew. I mean, it, it, it's, it's you don't want that obviously and, to and happen. Pierre, yeah, it gets worse. <laughs> right, it's not only that; it gets worse. I mean, yeah. look at the behavior that has been entrenched over the last thirty years. Um, yeah. The overconfidence. Um, developed by the central bank put, developed by the fact that markets always bounce back to new highs. That that recency bias that we have also feeding that overconfidence. All the while, we have the broadly adopted 60-40 portfolio whose 40% uh, portion of, of the portfolio that is, in fact, what we would term long vol, i.e. the 40% in sovereign bonds would be sort of long vol, but only in certain regimes, Yeah. right? So if you go to the 70s and you look at your bonds, they weren't long vol. They were actually correlated to stocks and they suffered just like stocks do. So we have all of the things that you just said, layered on top of that, a, a, a behavioral bias written uh, through overconfidence and enforced through that, that and then reinforced by the regulators on all of the, hey, own 60-40 lowest cost portfolio. Don't worry about any other diversifying assets. Then we're going to pile on zero interest rate policies. Like you have, you know, a, a large portion of the world's sovereign debt is now at a negative yield. So when we think about the hedge to the portfolio, bonds were a hedge potentially to certain equity risks. But now we have to always view those comparisons of how we might hedge. How are we going to hedge our 60-40 portfolio? Or really, better question is, how are we hedging the 60% of uh, beta exposure in our portfolio? And today, you look at, oh, I have a bleed over here in this long uh, vol portfolio, this, this tail hedge. 
you have a bleed in most sovereign bonds that you're going to buy right now. The comparison and then the impact of the comparison is a very interesting one. So you have to hold a lot of bonds to hedge your 60% equities. You don't have to hold quite so much. So on a, on a, on a comparable basis, I wonder, Jason, if I'm going to ask again, another three or four part question. So thinking about, <laughs> thinking about, thinking about the 60, 40 portfolio, obviously embedded in discounted cash flow rates are the, are the prices of stocks. So we have that working against this potentially in a rising interest rate environment. We have the bond, the hedge that bonds have placed, which have been totally polluted. Let's forget about all the credit in there that's pro-cyclical and long and long equity beta as well. But the 40% uh, bond exposure, how can we think about the tail hedge as, as being slotted in there? And how much of our bond exposure could we potentially get rid of and replace with something like a, a tail hedge protection? And so that sort of leads to the next question of capital efficiency. And maybe you can, so, so I hope those three, maybe you wrote them down. You can just walk us through that. <laughs> well, and, I, and I've got three prior questions from Pierre. So I'm going to try to get both <laughs> of you guys in the same question. And so the, the way to kind of look at it, so I'll, I'll go back to Pierre's a little bit too, is like, uh, you know, when we work with clients and they ask us, okay, how do I position size um, long volatility and tail risk in our portfolio? And then we say, you know, with our ensemble approach, Anything less than 10% is just not going to provide enough ballast for your portfolio. So that's at least the bare minimum. We like to talk about what we do as the new 60-40, right? If you have 60% equity, you can do 40% long volatility and tail risk instead of your bonds if you're worried about bonds in that position. If I'm an entrepreneur or I'm a financial advisor, I say all of my liquid net worth actually goes into long volatility and tail risk because my entire life is quadruple leverage, long GDP, long awash in liquidity. So as, as the good times are rolling, my businesses are doing great. So I put all of my excess cash into long volatility and tail risk because I want to be able to sleep at night, knowing if I wake up in the morning, there's coronavirus or something I could never think of, I'm, I'm okay. And to me, that is a superhuman power for entrepreneurs. They can just they can go all out on their idiosyncratic risk as an entrepreneur. They can double and triple down on themselves and their own idiosyncratic risk while hedging out that market liquidity risk. And I think that's a really powerful concept that it's hard for people to kind of glom onto. Going back to Mike's question about 60-40. So historically, if you look at over 100 years of, of stock bond correlations, it's actually, they're more of the majority of the time, they're actually correlated. So we've only had this unique you know, 30, 40 year period that's been actually my whole lifetime. Um, but the way to look at it now is those bonds have, have typically helped you in that risk off scenario with the Fed eventually stepping in but now the bonds are, are not necessarily positive carry. They mean negative real carry, and they no longer have the convexity at that zero bound that they normally would have. So now you're, getting, you know, you're not getting the, the positive carry, and then you're not getting the convexity anymore. So maybe bonds aren't the best scenario. But I see Rodrigo sitting there, so I, don't wanna be, <laughs> I would be remiss. If we have a, a, a continuing deflationary spiral, that those bonds would be very helpful. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And quite frankly... We look at it as we got out of the crystal ball game, right? We got out of the genius game. Taylor and I are not going to predict what's going to happen in the global macro environments over the next three to five years. We just try to build robust portfolios that can manage any global economic and macro environment and sustain and compound wealth over the long term. That's all we're looking to do. So going back to Mike's comment is like, you know, as we're, you know, somewhat fans of risk parity, we actually go prior to that thinking about Harry Brown's permanent portfolio Instead of necessarily levering up the bonds, Harry Barnes' permanent portfolio, just to reiterate, was 25% each stocks, bonds, cash, and gold. The way we look at it a little bit differently 
is now, as I said, with the derivative exposure of, of, the, of the stock part of the portfolio, we like to balance that out instead of cash. We like to use long volatility and tail risk. And then on the bond side, we like to balance that out instead of gold, use commodity trend advisors and an ensemble of those managers as well. And so that way you have this um, asymmetry or convexity. So the stock and bond and any, any sort of long GDP is going to be a mean reversion trade. You know, it's going to be a convergent trade. And then we want to balance those or balance those out with divergent trades that um, can really accelerate into a sell-off. And so that's why we look at that balance. But speaking of cash efficiency, we specifically built our portfolio in the futures and options market due to the cash efficiency of it. And so we built this long volatility and tail risk piece first because we always knew that was the hardest piece for retail to have access to. But we're going to add an ensemble of commodity trend um, advisors as well. And then we can add back in those stocks, bonds, gold, and maybe a little bit of Bitcoin as well to hedge out some of that fiat risk as well. But when you do that in futures and options, you can use, you can toggle your portfolio notional volatility to kind of whatever return to drawdown profile you want in that scenario. Well, yeah, I think that's important. The idea of tail protection is often talked with regard to a 100% equity portfolio. You have this non-normally distribution with a big fat tail. It's 100% S&P 500. Everybody's seen it, right? These large fat tails in the distribution of the S&P. And the only way to hedge against that is by going long volatility. And that's your only choice. And you're going to have this six to, uh, 3 to 6% bleed. But it's worth it. Every 10 years, you get paid off, right? The, the, the tails get thinner. But what you're describing is uh, a portfolio that is diversified enough where the portfolio already has thin tails, right? You have a you have gold that can offset bonds and equities in the 70s. Gold was up 1,400 percent in that that 1970 to 80 period when bonds and equities were highly correlated to each other and made no real returns, right? So you have that offsetting the negative tail of equities and bonds correlating and having a poor uh, decade, so that when you actually measure the distribution of returns with just those three—that commodity trend, that equity, that bond. And now you add that tail protection, you get closer and closer to that normal Gaussian distribution, right? But, but the important point I wanted to make was that, forget about the tail for a second, that portfolio of gold, somebody should, like, I've done this, like, every month I just do it just to, to like, be at all. But go to, I don't know, ETF replay. I don't know where you can get the data. Maybe, maybe hit me up on, on uh, Twitter. But just grab gold, grab equities, and grab bonds, from 1970 to now, and that portfolio is just so magical. Now, sadly, it, they do have moments of highly n- correlation to the downside when they're in, when liquidity dries up, and that's why you need that tail protection. But you don't need to have an, 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 like 50% of your portfolio be in tail because you have, you, you have other diversifiers, you have other tail protectors that are there. So the position in tail now goes from being that 60, 40, 40% in tail to something like 25% or 20% that does a good enough job to, to create a smoother rate yeah. of return and a smoother line, right? And that smoother line fixes so many problems, so many problems. The sequence of return risk, um, it, it, if, whether you're a saver or you are a retiree, the ability to put your money in and compound it or take your money out without having the fear that one, one, from one month to the next is going to be down 20% as you're taking money with, with 80% of what you had before. The other part of that... Absolutely massive. 
right? So again, like you said, the, you have to measure the two parts I want to touch on that you said, Rodrigo, that I think are, are really fascinating is like, if you're also using it in a cash efficient way and toggling that portfolio uh, notional leverage, is you could still have that exposure to stocks and bonds. So during the risk on times, those are just running along like somebody normally would. And you're basically hiding the, the tail risk, the commodity trend advisors and the gold in there. So it's a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And then once they need it, they pop out from behind the curtain and they help ballast that portfolio and do well over time. And as you know, like with you guys using risk parity, like you're saying, it's, you're trying to reduce to that Gaussian curve of, of a distribution of returns. But as we know, in, in March 2020, if you have a massive liquidity event like March of 2020, people are selling off anything. They're selling off the baby of the bathwater. They don't want to be selling their gold, but they have to because it's, it's a liquidity event. And so if you had a sliver of tail risk, to manage that that portion of your risk parity portfolio, you can you can be just fine when those correlations go to one because you have a structurally negatively correlated convex asymmetric asset on the books that helps ballast even the rest of a risk parity portfolio if correlations go to one for a few weeks at a time, and so you don't get scared out of position. Yeah, I would add one other thing. We're talking about long only, right? We're basically, long gold, long equities, long bonds. And they diversified each other until like the last week of or the last few days of the crash in March. And then everything went down. Gold was sold. Bonds were sold. Equities were sold. And so we did talk a little bit about that long short portfolio, that long short like commodity trend. Well, guess what? That in the most of those commodity trend portfolios were cut off side, too, because there has been there was this massive upswing and everything. It was a risk on. It was massive liquidity. So it took a while for CTAs to get out of the way. So we're not even even CTAs and trend followers had a tough go in the beginning of that crash. Right. So you're not guaranteed with an alpha manager that has the ability to short that they're going to be on the right side when things hit the fan. And that's the idea of having that tail protection can protect you. For your alpha managers, your long short alpha managers, they can protect you for your gold positions, for your equity positions, and your bond positions. That's the the, the preparation part. With not the way we talk about it too is like debt. at a gross level, you have correlated, which everything is correlated with your equity beta, basically all your long GDP assets. Uncorrelated, which is like your commodity trend advisors, and then structurally negative correlated, like put options in in long volatility tail risk, and everything falls within those three buckets. But the unfortunate thing that you, I'm sure you guys have educated on this a million times, CTA trend being uncorrelated means a lot of times it can be correlated with that equity beta. So that's why we want that structurally negatively correlated asset class on the books. Exactly. That's exactly my point. That's why it's so crucial right, to have something there uh, as, as protection or you know, preparation is what, like, what we like to say. You're not trying to, you cannot predict COVID. You cannot predict what COVID would have on the market. COVID began in in November. It became worldwide by January, and we were looking at it. It's like how this is like the Teflon market. Nothing sticks on it, right? Anybody looking at the news flow would have thought that the crash would have started in January. Well, but no, it's just it's all unpredictable. So having that protective layer up front is so important. Build it in. So, Jason, can you talk about? Um, how you guys approach the, 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 the preventing the tail from wagging the dog or how uh, aspiring uh, advisors, allocators who might want to allocate to this, you know, unlike the Wimbledon situation where they pay the, you know, you pay your insurance and you get your money. This is a little bit different. And you're going to have this massive return in a portfolio. And then that's going to be a very big position in the portfolio. And the portfolio start is going to start to be wagged by that. 
So what are your thoughts on it? How, how, how would you might advise, you know, practitioners to think about that? Sure. We, we want you to treat us like an ATM, right? When you need cash, we would hopefully be there and we want to provide that cash with you. So then you can rebalance at that lower nav point of your other assets. Um, the way we also had to think about it is, as you guys know, working with clients is that it's, it's maybe not so easy behaviorally to rebalance. So not only do we offer our long volatility tail risk, we've also paired it with a 100% exposure to the S&P 500 futures. So we offer 100% exposure to long volatility tail risk, and then we're able to cash efficiently overlay 100% exposure to S&P futures, and we rebalance it monthly. We don't do any sort of timing on S&P futures. We don't do any sort of anything cute with it. We just rebalance on the first of the month, and that way it's a forced rebalancing for our clients, which helps compound their wealth over time. So at the end of March, and you would have been rebalancing now from, the, from nobody wanted to buy equities April 1st. I don't know anybody that wanted to buy equities April 1st, but we would have been rebalancing into that because we had this convex cash position from the long volatility. And the same thing at the end of 2020, you know, when equities are up, you know, 50, 60%, nobody wanted to rebalance into tail risk. They nobody want to take the chips off the table. So we view as, as by rebalancing it for the clients in-house, we're one, able to do it in a cash-efficient way. And the reason we do it with 100% exposure to each is so financial advisors and individuals can toggle that exposure. So let's say you wanted 50% exposure to the S&P and 50% tail risk. You only have to put up 50% cash to get both of those exposures. And then you have 50% to look at you know, alternative investments or whatever you want to do for your clients. So that's why we built it that way so people could toggle the exposure they wanted. Capital more, efficiency. Exactly. It's capital <clears throat> efficiency and more, but more importantly, it's a forced rebalancing that's going to compound your wealth better over time. So how did, how did I know we, we've probably talked about this, uh, Mike and Rodrigo, and, but how, how did clients actually behave throughout that period at your end, Jason, in terms of um, you know, the, the route in the market and then the subsequent you know, recovery what actually happened there? Like, I know you've, you know, you've got your sort of systematic strategies in place, rules-based, and, and, you know, what you were just talking about, the, the um, systematic rebalancing into S&P 500 uh, out of uh, the tail risk. Um, but what, what actually, what was, the, what was the actual outcome after having a 35 40% drop in the market uh, for your own clients in terms of... Um, what you're doing in terms of your strategies. So this is, is probably going to be a better question for Mike and Rodrigo, solely because we spent all of 2019 just getting over the regular, regulatory hurdles to get our fund in place. Oh, and, and that's right. Start, you launched in yeah, April. Yeah, we started marketing January at the end of January 2020. Yeah. And then because uh, we, had, we had to aggregate $5 million to be able to launch the fund because the, we had the, all the regulatory requirements and, and to be in managers that are like QEP minimums or, you know, those sorts of things. And so we launched April 17th. So it, it's just, you know, but as, as we watched, you know, family and friends and investors, you know, a lot of people, as we know, turtle in that position. You know, once that sell-off becomes negative 20, like people just, they go into paralysis yeah. And then they, they got lucky with this K-shaped recovery. But I'll let Mike and Rodrigo speak to that a little bit better. But I, I think on our end, what's been interesting is seeing, um, you know, since that April 17th, the market has been up. It was up, I think, almost 35% through the end of the year. But now people also don't want to rebalance uh, <laughs> back to the long volatility tail risk, right? So it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword on both sides. Yeah, and that's what I was getting to, which is how, how is the uh, performance of the market curving people's sentiment, you know, and, and their, their willingness I will walk you through 
yeah. an interesting timeline, okay? Because this is an important point, actually. This is a very important point. Tail isn't a 5% drop in the yeah. market. That's not a tail event. A 10% drop is not a tail event. I remember one of your sub-advisors, uh, Artemis, one of his bigger clients calling me up in the first week when the market was down 8% and saying, I'm incredibly disappointed with these guys. I cannot believe it. Like the market just had a massive sell-off and they're not, like, they're not even moving. There's just like nothing there. And I was like, well, you, you bought them for tail, right? It's like, yeah, exactly. I'm like, well, not, you're not even close, but you need to get to like close to 20 for this thing to start paying off. Right. And at that point, you'll be very happy that you didn't, you know, cuss them out, call them up and say, what are you doing? Because in, in, when, when we had that tail protection in our books as an independent line item, we get calls all the time. A bad day. Hey, what's going on with that position? Well, it's probably up a, a basis point. Right. So that was the first phase, I think, of, of clients that own tail, disgruntled uh, clients. Then that second lift they were ecstatic. They were getting paid. They were offsetting a lot of their positions. Some of them that I was talking to said they didn't have enough because they, they just didn't want to take the bleed. So there's also that thing. And then when you'd ask them, Is it, are, you time, are you ready to rebalance? Like, how are you, are you taking it? And he's like, no, I'm not. I don't want to rebalance. This market's terrible. It's going to go down to zero. Right? So that's how important it is to have a good um, advisor on your side that is keeping you in line that where you're creating an investment policy statement that tells you upfront from a rules-based perspective, when this happens, we do this. When this other thing happens, we do that. I don't care how you feel at the moment. We're just going to execute blindly. And it always feels yeah. terrible. Right? It always feels terrible. You want to fire them when, they're, when you're, the market's down eight and, and you're not uh, getting their performance. You don't want to fire them when the market's down 30 and you're getting paid off. And then when everything reverses back, you don't want to rebalance back into the tail because it's had such a tough go. Right. So in every case, this is what Vanguard calls the advisor alpha, is where the advisor needs to be in there educating and holding hands and more importantly, creating an investment policy statement for those individual clients that explicitly states. And Rodrigo said it take. really well is like we also try to educate our clients that anything less than a 10 percent move we view as noise. If you right. tried to hedge that, you would be so prohibitively expensive. It wouldn't make sense in the compounding sense or rebalancing sense. We try to like look at that negative 20% attachment point because the academic literature shows that's where most people start to really, the fear kicks in at that negative 20% move. And so, you know, we hope to start to cover around one for one. But the point is, when you start getting 30, 40% drawdowns, those um, convexity of those puts and the long volatility will accelerate beyond that move. So it, it really, it takes like almost like a train leaving the station. It really picks up convexity the deeper and right. faster that drawdown is to offset that, that drawdown. Do you, does it? Am I wrong in thinking that it creates a whole other range of behavioral outcomes? I mean, I'm assuming they're favorable, but doesn't doesn't it? I mean, when you have when you go from anguish to relief, <laughs> you know, in such a short space of time, it, it there there's still that element that you can't remove that element of bittersweet, uh, you know, outcome that. Like, like you were, I mean, I, I think this, what speaks to that is what you said is that, you know, you started in April by the end of the year, um, your clients, uh, your friends, your family, your clients, they're not, they're not, so they're not really willing participants to go back to the, uh, the, the tail risk protection, right? Once, once they've made money sort of, you know, the natural, the natural way, 
um, <laughs> getting them back on board or getting them getting them back in the bottle uh, is is harder, right? Like yeah, you almost exactly. you almost have to wait for something to happen that 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 tricks them into getting back in the bottle for you. Yeah. You know, like a, like a little scare. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah, we don't, unfortunately want to build our business that way. But like, that's that's the reason. No, we, I know. I'm just, I'm yeah, just speaking yeah. hypothetically. Right. Like, no, how that's do you, why, how, no, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. That's why we paired it with the 100% ISP exposure, and we try to push clients into that because it's yeah. the spoonful of medicine. You know, it's the spoonful of sugar issue because that really helps them hold on is to see those because you kind of hide that long volatility line item in there while you're compounding over time, and then you're holding more equity beta. So that's what like Rod- Rodrigo was talking about. It's like comparing, you know, 100% S&P exposure with tail risk, um, the actual comparison should be 60-40. And most people don't compare it that way. But that's the way you should be comparing it. And it, it usually far exceeds 60-40 over multiple business cycles. But I think everybody, all of us have been in the scenario where we have we have skin in the game and we have soul in the game because we have our, our families and our in-laws. and we have So we have all that Thanksgiving risk and so we have to worry about that every day. And I don't, I'm sure you guys have had this experience is when you're at your in-laws house and it's the first of the month and you have a negative print come out. Um, that's a, that's an awkward uh, coffee mm-hmm. session that morning at, with your in-laws, you know? So the, we have to, we have to deal with that like everybody else. And then at the end of the year, just even, you know, convincing even my own father to reload, right. That, cause he was just in the long volatility and yeah. it's hedging out all the equity beta. And it's, 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 it's a tough go always. And that's why we think it's, it's probably better to build holistic portfolios where you're able to almost hide the long volatility, the tail risk, the commodity trend, the gold, the Bitcoin in there um, and rebalance frequently. So then people can can ride out any scenario and they don't have to think about it. What we would really like at the end of the day is to take um, this idea of investments and take it back to savings. Right. Everybody, they talk about investments now because then it makes you forces you to take imprudent risks when this is your savings and you need your savings to outpace inflation and be there when you need it. And that may be a year from now or 100 years from now. And I want to go back to pre-1980, let's say, when people didn't look at their portfolio on their phone app 10 times a day. I want (laughs) people to focus on their business, focus on their families, focus on enjoying the quotidian parts of their life, and let their savings just slowly and boringly compound over multiple business cycles. That's my dream. Yeah. Yeah, the alternative, I mean... I was just kidding with you before, but it, yeah, the the you know and just creating a situation, but but it, it kind of goes to Mike's remark about the tail wagging the dog, and then the other. I mean, the bottom line is that losing money sucks, and and uh, that's really what you want to. That's the end. That's the bottom line, really. Right? Is is that's the main part of your message? Is that is that? Yeah, it's great when you're making money. It's great when markets are ticking along like they have, um, you know, for the last. 10 years, um, and, and including the, the last year, uh, despite the downturn. Um, but the bottom line is that losing money sucks. And, and anybody that got scared out of the market last year probably didn't get back in until it was way too late to do that. And, and then, you know, they're facing again, the same, the same sort of tail risk or, or, you know, 20 plus percent correction that's potential around the corner. Um, and you don't want to you, you don't want to wait for that. But but for for people who have something to lose, like their family's wealth, uh, it's a lot more. It, the 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 gravity of what you're doing is much greater. And and I, I could see where where because the gravitational pull is so much stronger to hang on to what you've got and and continue to make you know returns that that you'd be willing to uh, to sacrifice some of your return. 
uh, for the protection. Well, as you know, it's not, I've been trying to. Well, again, it's sacrifice. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't mean, I mean, term. in terms of fixed cost versus, versus, you know, your, your actual long-term returns. Um, it's like rent, right? I mean, yeah. So. And it's, it, it's a fair comparison to say, too, that like you may not be keeping up with the Joneses next door that are levered long you know, equity beta. So it, it is a fair it's a fair argument. But I think what's even more importantly that you're pointing out, Pierre, is like I've been trying not to use the word ergodicity in this whole conversation. But <laughs> just I, I, I heard that before. Yeah. I heard that last in uh, your your uh, your your resolve riffs. Yeah, I, we have like a <laughs> we have like a dollar jar. I have to put that in every time I use it. But uh but the way we think about it is like sequencing risk, because what you pointed out is there's not like a, it's not a certain sell-off. There's an absorbing barrier at a certain point, and it usually starts to be about negative 20% when people capitulate. And even if in America, it's even like a 401k or an IRA, where yeah. it's really difficult for them to close it out, they don't care. At a certain point, they're going to close it out and go to cash. And we saw that time and time again in 2008. Everybody closes it down, sells at the bottom, unfortunately, and then doesn't participate in any upside. And everybody's going, yeah, but look at the S&P 500 return or the 60-40 return over the last 30 years. And you don't think about the individual path dependency of the actual investor that sold at the bottom, missed all the rebound, and they're, they're so far behind a 60-40, but that's what everybody's selling. Yeah, I think it's... I would also add that there's different, different bear markets, right? And the, the, just look, uh, Peter, we're talking about how it's difficult the decisions that you're going to have to make you're constantly making decisions we talked about how difficult it is to stick to the tail then rebalance into the tail but all of those decisions that i outlined are a lot easier than oh my god my portfolio is down 50 percent. i'm 70 years old yeah what what am i going to do now that decision can can kill your retirement right it is a single catastrophic paralyzing decision that a lot of people went to cash at the bottom in March. Had they not, they got the people who didn't recovered. But if we take this back to 08, even if you stuck with it, it took you six years to break back to even. Six yeah. years. In the tech crisis, it took you around four to five years, right? So these, these different bear markets, and every one of them may, it forces people to make catastrophic decisions at the worst possible time. So I would rather have my clients and, and people listening to this make smaller, difficult, and ongoing decisions to that bear market. When you have the right components, you yeah. can do it with composure in, in a way that you can't when you don't. And it's hard to stick to. That's why there's a risk premium there. It's not easy. It's pretty simple. Just mm-hmm. do these five things and rebalance and close your eyes. Uh, but, you know, there's no shortage of reasons why those things don't happen. While the tail hedge isn't funded next year or the it, it's it's bought after the fact. Oh, I saw that I saw the drawdown and now I'm now I'm concerned and now I'm putting it on only to abandon it prior to it paying out. Any investment strategy that you're going to embrace, you, you need to know it at its worst and you need to know it at its worst because you're not going to quit anywhere else. You're only going to quit when it's at its worst. And then you're going to absorb all the risk and none of the return premium. And so you can quit for a number of different reasons. And we've talked about how tail hedge is a little bit more unique in how you might quit, right? You're going to quit in, in this, this you know, sort of Chinese water torture 
of small losses. And, um, <laughs> but it, it plays almost perfectly into what we know about all the behavioral in investing science, right? What, what do you hate? Hate losses. Like you said, I hate losing money. Mm -hmm. um, how about losing it for like a little bit for a long time, just over and over again? Well, I don't like that even more. I mean, especially when the thing that you're hedging is probably doing very well because that's, you know, you didn't crash your car, thus you didn't get paid a premium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so these are, so this, it is, um, I think one of the things that I, I find heartening by the discussion, so we, we, we talk about the, the, the side of, oh man, it's hard to keep investors on point. Yeah. And that's exactly why the risk premium is there. That's exactly why this opportunity exists for yeah. those who are willing to look at it today. And probably today is about as opportune as you can get because the, the hedge that you've had in your portfolio since 1982 that had a massive real, um, real return uh, cruising altitude for you to just clip those coupons while it was negatively correlated stocks, that's not there so much anymore. That carry is often negative. And, yeah, and zero as we go and think about real returns in the portfolio, those bonds could have significant real return negative carry. And so that hedge that you had in your portfolio is not what you think it is. It, it hasn't been in the 70s. It, it wasn't in the Great Depression. You know, it, it was. It, there, there are some things there that you want to get that ensemble. You want to build all of those other opportunities to provide, um, you know, some returns to the portfolio when the things that you're most confident in, you know, may may treat you a little bit differently than you have might expect. And I think, I think it's important at this point as advisors are listening to this, that we should not conflate experience with expertise, right? We've experienced a particular type of market in our 10, 20, 30 years of being advisors in this business. But we need expertise. We need to think about this from the perspective of the future outcomes for our clients. And there's never been, in my opinion, a more important time to have advisors get educated, get disciplined, and create some rules around how their clients are going to interact with them in order to prepare for all the possible outcomes of the future. I mean, if we are indeed at a zero rate environment where leverage is cheap and everybody's trying to reach for yield and leverage is going to be a big reason to do that, you're also going to have more corrections in a faster manner than we've ever seen ever before. And let's assume, let's say it's like the 2000, 2010, where equity markets make zero, or from 1970 to 1980, where equities and bonds make zero. In between that ten, those decades, there were two or three major drops that paid quite handsomely. So instead <laughs> of doing this up, down, up, down, and having like a, like a saw portfolio, you get to not lose on the down and get the up, not lose on the down and get the up, even if we have a zero. Is that exactly how your portfolio works, Jason? I think that's a, <laughs> it's about as good as a pitch as you could get right there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Not financial the, advice, not financial yeah, advice. Yeah, not financial, financial advice. regulators <laughs> might have a problem with that. With the bleed, not financial advice. There is, there, there is but the, the, the point is that if we go, if we continue to have these abrupt losses, and you're able to protect that and rebalance into it, you're going you're gonna to have a much better shot. You know, what I, you know what I love about all this? Anyway. 
that's my my. Two what I love about all this is that you know I, I realize I'm sitting here thinking that that you know um, advisors are going to listen to this and and even if they don't understand exactly what was talked about today, they know that it exists. They know that it's possible. And so when a client says, "Hey, you know, John, is there some way that we could protect my 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 corporate wealth, my my nest egg?" Uh, I just sold my company and, you know, I don't want to see another 2020 happen to it again where we were down 40 percent and I was shitting myself. You know, I I, is there, you know, do you know of something like is there some way we could, you know, make sure that that doesn't happen again? And now, you know, because we've talked about it and because we've shared it, you know, then then the optimism is there. Well, you know what? I didn't fully understand what I heard about, but I, I know there's a way. And uh, I'm going to look into it like, you know, the same way, Jason, that you did when you started looking for a way to uh, protect your family and your friends from from, you know, just that sort of thing uh, that happened last year and other times before. Um, You know, I think just knowing that it exists opens the door to the possibility of learning about it further and uh, digging in or listening to this, you know, three, four, five times. Uh, You know, I listened to. For example, I listened to the the you know what we did with uh, Nancy Davis. Uh, I've listened to it five times. You know, I've listened to others as well, but I listened to what we did with Nancy Davis five times because that's how long I think it took for me to to realize after the fact that what we talked about to understand what we talked about, and I'm I'm probably going to you know end up doing the same thing with with, with what we've talked about today. Um, and you know, because I sincerely, I want to understand how, you know, how to make, how to broaden this discussion and how to, you know, maybe create the analogies that go with it to help other people understand, you know, that, that they can, there is more that they can do than, than just the, the old 60, 40, um, they, they have to. Yeah, they have to meet. They have to meet obligations well, well, written that more. require them to have positive real rates of turn. This is not a joke. Yeah. This is this ain't a show, man. This is real life. <laughs> you are required to do this right now, and and I I love it. Hey, I'm an I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, and I just came in with a boatload of cash, and I'm scared, so I'm going to sit yeah. in cash. I don't know if you've noticed, but M true M two grew by twenty five percent in January. What do you think your cash is worth? Yeah. I can tell you the way that it's worth. Also, less. real returns are negative right now. Correct. Real returns right now are negative. You're getting your your cash is Correct. getting and thus, lower and lower, right? Like, yeah, you, you are you, you are your real return on cash is pretty darn <laughs> slim right now. <laughs> I'll say it. I'll say it. I'll say it. I'll say it a different way. So you know, typically they've called tail risk because of Taleb, the Black Swan event. But uh, one of our partners we work is RCM Alternatives, and Jeff Malik there has, has coined the term the white moose event. And the white moose event is happens when you keep betting on the black swan event to happen, and meanwhile, the market's ripping higher. You've been sitting yeah. in cash for the last 10 years thinking the next event's going to happen while well, the market's ripping higher. We believe in building holistic portfolios. We're not perma bears, where we try to combine the white moose and the black swan to create yeah. a balanced portfolio. And I think recently, um, Tony Deeden said it best is we need to look at the medical practice, right? A medical doctor has a practice because he's not giving the the client what they want. He's giving the client what they need. And that's what we need to start focusing on again. Yeah. Amen. Amen. And I I think uh, just to to let everybody know, uh, Pierre, you're absolutely right. 
people need to listen to this podcast. But if you want like to go direct to the to the man, I mean, Jason and his team uh, have put together a great yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna website. post all those resources. They have, they've yeah. they're not only have their own content, but also they have they have um, gathered a lot of. Yeah really forward thinkers and their content on their website. So lots of podcasts. Lots Jason, of just give us all your call-ups, your website, learn about Twitter. This stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, if I can remember, it's a, we're just at mutinyfund.com and we, that's where we list our podcast and our media. You can find our podcast at Muni, Mutiny Investing Podcast. Um, and I'm at Jason Mutiny on Twitter and my partner's at Taylor Pearson Me on Twitter. Awesome. Great resources for everyone to... Okay, just one more one more question. It's a would you rather question. Oh yeah. Would you rather live for a week in the past or live for a week in the future? And why? My past or just the general past? Your past. <laughs> your past. Your past. Would you rather spend a week in your past or a week in your future? Uh, I think that's future is, is the easy answer. Like I, I just have an insatiable curiosity. So if I already know what happened in the past, I don't care about redoing anything. I'd want to see the future and, and, and have some novelty. So that wouldn't be paradoxical. <laughs> I think it might be because then you're going to come back to live your life. And now you have to live a life that you know that you have. It's one week. Either way, like either way, it's just a week. Who really yeah. like... <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not sure that I, maybe the question needs clarification. Yeah, is it maybe I didn't one get the week question. in ten years in the future, or your? I, I I assumed I could pick. When no, I, I, was. is it before or after the Lotto <laughs> yeah. Six? Yeah, you know, you know, is it a weekly thing, Lotto Six Forty Nine? You know, when I, I when I found this question, forward? I it reminded me of um, Kurt Vonnegut's book Slaughterhouse Five, where where you know he could where the main character Kilgore Trout could travel to any part of his past or any part of his future, but he couldn't change anything. You could just really experience it. Right. Um, but that's, that's not what I'm asking you. I mean, you could go down any path with the question, but so you'd want to go to the future. That's the bottom line. You'd want to see the future. Yeah. I've already lived the past, but in the, yeah. in the Nietzschean sense, I'd happily relive my whole past over again, but yeah. Why not see the future. <laughs> I love it. But then when awesome. you're snapped back into your today life, you then have to live that whole life without. Anyway, it's interesting. Yeah, but I think, that, and I brought up Nietzsche because it actually applies to what we're talking about is he's amor fati, love of one's fate. And yeah. that's what hedging your portfolio can do. You can love your fate into the future, no matter what happens to your portfolio. Well, like you can't Brilliant. finish off on anything better than Nietzsche. Come on. Very stoic of you. <laughs> love that. I'm done. I'm nothing to say. That's good. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jason. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you, Jason. Guys. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jason.